Taylor. What a song. Isn't that a beautiful song? You know, God has a plan for your life, and he has a plan for my life, and we can only see the immediate. We can see right now what's happening today. We see our failures. We see our weaknesses. We see the difficulties we're going through in our lives. God sees the end of the story. He has the plan for us to make us conform to the image of Christ. He's still working on me. He's still working on you. He's not finished yet. 
And I thank the Lord for that. He has a dream of what we can be. Isn't that a blessing? Shall we just open in a word of prayer? Father, we're so grateful and we're so thankful that we can be here this morning in your presence to hear from your word, Lord. We thank you that it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can understand it. And we pray now as we come before you, Lord, we feel like we're a man going to the seashore with a little tiny thimble trying to gather in all the water. And Lord, your word is so rich and so deep, we can't fathom it. We can't fully comprehend it sometimes. But we pray that by your spirit you will teach us today. Please hide me behind the cross, Lord, and just help each one of us get a blessing from your word. And so we commit it to you. We thank you for Taylor and her life and her ministry and song. And for each one in this church, we thank you for Adel and Sylvia and their mentoring of us and their shepherding and their counseling and teaching and how they've helped us over the years. May you richly bless them and give them many more days, many more years until you come. And Lord, we hope you come really soon because we all want to be raptured at the same time together. And so we ask this now in your precious name. Amen. You know, one of the most insidious and destructive elements in the heart of man is doubt. Doubt. We've all faced it. And if I ask you to raise up your hand today and say, has there ever been a time in your life, in your Christian life, since you've been a believer, that you've had doubt? I think all of us would raise our hands because the devil is bombarding us with doubt. That's why Paul gave the, the analogy of the armor of God, and he said, put on the helmet of salvation because the devil is out to get us. He wants to get to our minds. He wants to get to our hearts. He wants to get us to doubt, to fear, to worry, and get our attention off of Christ. And the Lord wants to redirect us today to put our eyes on him, because that's when we have strength. That's when we have victory. That's when we have encouragement. And it's so easy in our world today when you put on the TV or you turn on your internet connection or you pull out the newspaper to see all the bad things that are happening in the world and to worry, what about my job, Lord? What about my home, Lord? What about my health, Lord? And the Lord just says, I will take care of you. That's why we sang that beautiful song today, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransom powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Yes. The devil wants to sow doubt and discouragement in the hearts of God's people, and we have to drive it out, drive out the doubt. That's the title of our message today, Drive Out Doubt. It's a clever little saying to help us remember it, drive out doubt. Remember how God got, put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them so many wonderful gifts and blessings and all these trees to eat from, and he said, you can eat from every tree in the garden except the one in the middle of the garden. If you eat from that, you shall surely die. And what did the serpent come? He slithered in and he talked to Eve. He said, you shall not surely die. He said, God knows that the day that you eat this fruit, you're going to become wise. You're going to become like God. In other words, he's causing her to doubt God's love, God, doubt God's word, doubt God's care, and go ahead and take for herself that forbidden fruit. And ever since then, sin has been in the heart of man. Doubt has been there. And the devil loves to sow doubt. I can imagine his meetings. Like, you know, you have meetings at work, and you have the CEO sitting around the table with all the 
high up people in the company and they're all figuring out how we can be successful in our business. Well, the devil has meetings too. And he has all his top officials there. How can I get to Ron? How can I get to Nick? How can I get to Alan? How can I get to Lorraine? How can I cause them to get their eyes off of Christ and to doubt God's love? And that's what he's out to do every day of our lives. I like the definition I found of doubt. It says to waver in opinion, to be uncertain in opinion or belief, be undecided, to be inclined to disbelief, to be uncertain about, to question, to feel distrust of, a lack of conviction, a lack of confidence. And that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to get us to doubt. He wants us to get our eyes on ourselves, on our circumstances, on our problems, so he can defeat us. That's what he wants to do. And so God wants us to take him at his word, believe in him, have faith, and drive out the doubt. Drive it out. And today our subject is going to be on the Apostle Thomas. Now Thomas really, I think, got kind of a bad rap because yes, he did doubt, and yes, he did fail, but he's been known ever since as Doubting Thomas. Can you imagine trying to live down a reputation of being Doubting Thomas? It's like if they said, Dean, your nickname is Doubting Dean. That wouldn't be a very nice nickname to have. We don't want that. We want to be faithful. We want to have faith. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles today to the 20, 20th chapter of John and verse 24. Gospel according to John in chapter 20 will begin at verse 24. Thomas failed by doubting. Peter failed by denying the Lord. All the disciples failed by forsaking him and fleeing. And it even says in another scripture, some doubted. It didn't just mention Thomas only, it said some doubted. And so Thomas was the chiefest of the doubters. And so we're going to look at his life today and how the Lord can encourage us not to be doubtful, but to have faith in him. Let's read together verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hand the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Whoa. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and look at my hand. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. A man named Raymond Edmonds said, Don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Isn't that good? Don't doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light. Because, you know, sometimes in our lives we go through times of darkness. We go through times of discouragement. 
we can be so saddened by things. And God has revealed so many promises in his word. But if we don't pick up his word and read it and study it, we're not going to be blessed by those promises. And the devil can really do a, a work on us. We have to confidently come to the Lord and trust in him and allow him to do his work in us. Today we're going to look at who Thomas was. Secondly, why he doubted. Third, what changed his heart? What changed his mind? And fourth, what he did for the Lord after that. Yes, the end of the story. So let's look first of all at who he was. You know, Thomas was one of the 12 disciples. He's called Didymus, which means twin. So he's called the twin. And in scripture, we don't read very much about him, about his background. For example, we know that Peter and Andrew and James and John were all fishermen. We know that. And we also know that Levi, who's also called Matthew, was a tax collector. But we don't know the background of Thomas. What did he do? But I think we have a little clue as later on in this chapter, in chapter 20, we see that when the brothers went out fishing, Peter and Andrew, Nathaniel, and all those brothers, they went out fishing after the resurrection, after the Lord had appeared to them, Thomas was with them. So I thought to myself, could he have possibly been a fisherman too? Because when they went fishing, he went fishing along with them. But whatever his background was, he had a heart for the Lord. He really did love the Lord. And you can see it and you can sense it by reading his words and the way the Lord reacted to him. A man named David Smith said that his name was probably really Judas. And they called him the twin or Didymus to distinguish him from Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot. So that might have been his name. Judas at that time was a very common name. So to give him a special name, they called him the twin. And I thought that was kind of neat. And he was one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples who loved the Lord and walked with him. He saw every miracle. He saw every provision the Lord made for people. All the healings, all the miracles, he saw it all along with the other disciples. But he doubted. And sometimes we can have those doubts too. They creep in. And we have to trust God to give us the victory over them and to drive them out. And we're going to see that's what happened with Thomas. If you look back to John chapter 11 and verse 16, you'll see the first instance where John records what Thomas had to say. He spoke in several places, and they're all recorded in the gospel according to John. Here at Thomas is speaking, and he says, Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Remember the story, Jesus had waited four days and Lazarus had died, and then they thought, well, he's fine because Jesus said he had fallen asleep. But he says, now I'm telling you plainly, Lazarus is dead. And so he was going to Lazarus, and all the disciples were going to go with him. And Thomas says, let's go, let's go and die with him. Didn't that show that Thomas loved the Lord enough to die for him? That's a commitment. His heart was right. He had a good heart and a good spirit, and we see that he was willing to even die for the Lord. In John 14, 5, if you look at that verse, we see Thomas again speaking to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus had just said in verse 4, And you know 
where I go and the way you know. And notice in verse 5, Thomas says this, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? So he's very honest. Thomas wasn't one of these kind of people that if he didn't know the answer, he'd try to fake it. He was honest and sincere. I don't know the answer, Lord. I want to know where you're going. I want to know the way. And Jesus then didn't rebuke him, but said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. Follow in, in my way. And Thomas was blessed by that. And so the Lord shows instances in Scripture that show the heart and character and lifestyle of Thomas and how patient the Lord was with him and how compassionate he was to him. Yes, Thomas was one of the apostles who was with the Lord. So that's our first point today, who he was. Secondly, why he doubted. Now, how can we really ever know for sure why a person doubts? We really don't. Should there have been any reason why he doubted? No. He was with him from the Lord from the beginning. He saw the miracles, all the great things the Lord did, but he doubted. And the disciples were like that too. They were with the Lord all this time. And then when the women came back and told them that Jesus had risen from the dead, it says they didn't believe him. They didn't believe. And so the Lord had to energize them. He had to come back to them after he rose from the dead and show himself and prove to them beyond any shadow of a doubt that I'm alive. The only thing about it was is Thomas wasn't there for the first time that the Lord revealed himself. You know, if they had a table with 12 seats, and you can imagine, let's say, six seats on each side here and the Lord would be at the head, there would be a spot and there'd be a name for Peter and for Andrew and James and John and all the disciples. But there'd be two missing spots at this time. Judas, who was the traitor, who was never saved, who left the Lord, who denied the him and forsook him and sold him, his spot was missing. They didn't even have a name tag for Judas anymore. But there was a name tag for Thomas, and it was missing in his spot. Reminds me of the days of David when they were having the meal all together, all the king's uh, leaders there, Saul and all his men and things. David had a spot, and he was missing. And he told Jonathan, he says, if the king wonders where I am, tell him I've gone to visit with my father and my brothers to celebrate a feast and so forth, because his place would be missing. Thomas's place was missing. He wasn't there. Why wasn't he there? I think he was so sad and so discouraged by the Lord's death on the cross that he was probably just depressed and sad by it. And he wasn't there with the other disciples. And so later on, when the Lord spoke to those disciples, notice in chapter 20, back to our chapter, the Lord comes to those disciples, and he says, it says in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad when they saw the Lord. So the Lord came to them. He walked through the walls. Isn't that amazing? His heavenly body, his glorified body, just passed right through the walls. He comes in. He says, peace to you. He says, look at my hands. Look at these wounds. They're there to remind you of my love. It's really me. And it says they rejoiced 
when they saw the Lord. It's amazing. But, as I mentioned, Thomas wasn't there when they were there. And so when the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, Thomas didn't say this. He didn't say, hallelujah, praise God, Jesus is alive. He said, no, I have to see it with my own eyes. I have to feel him with my own hands. Otherwise, I'm not going to believe. And it's amazing to me how unbelief can be so disastrous in the life of any person. It really can. Unbelief, doubt. And that's what Thomas did. He doubted the Lord. He didn't believe it. He says, I have to see it with my own eyes. Higher? Got it. Thank you. I have to see it with my own eyes. I have to feel it with my own hands. And it reminds me of the time with Mary, how she said, Lord, if you had been here, and same thing with Martha, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, they started to doubt. If Jesus loved us this much, why did he let my brother die? Why did he let our brother die? And then he spoke to Martha these words. He says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You know, the world's got it totally backwards. The world says, seeing is believing. Show me, prove it to me. But God says, no, you have to believe first, then you will see. Then it will be shown to you. Then it will be proven to you. The Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, when we get to heaven, the Lord is going to reward our faith for believing in him. Because we have never seen the Lord with our natural eyes, have we? We've never touched him with our hands. We've never heard his, his voice audibly with our ears. We will when we get to glory. But by faith, we believe in him. We know he's alive. We know he's real. So we don't want to be like doubting Thomas. We don't want to have this doubt in our minds because God has given us his word. You know, when I was reading through the dictionary, I actually found a definition for doubting Thomas. I mean, it was right there because I had just looked up the word doubt and I looked down and I see it. It says, doubting Thomas. Everybody in the world has heard of doubting Thomas. They don't know necessarily it's from the Bible, but they've heard the term. And what it means in the dictionary is one who habitually doubts, chronic skeptic. Now, we've all known people like that, haven't we, where they, everything you say to them, you say it's black, they say it's white. You say it's green, they say, no, it's yellow. You want this, I want that. They're opposite. They always conflict. They always conflict. Chronic skeptics, chronic doubters, they don't believe. You tell them something, I said, this movie was really great. No, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it till I see it myself or whatever. It is chronic doubters. May the Lord help us to have the belief in him, the faith in him to not doubt. Not doubt. Especially when the devil starts whispering in our ears, God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's too busy with all the affairs of the universe to care about your company, your job, your health, your family. But that's the opposite. God loves each one of us with a deep, eternal love. He cares for us. He cares for the affairs of our lives. And then we see here in this chapter how in verse 26 to 28, we see how the Lord turns it all around for his glory. But notice in verse 26 it says, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas 
was with them. What did Thomas think about? Let's use our sanctified imagination. During these eight days, what do you think he thought about? He probably paced the floor and thought, is Jesus really alive? Am I really ever going to see him again? Am I ever going to really reach out my fingers and touch those wounds in his hand? Am I really going to touch his side where the spear went in? And am I going to really see it? Is it really going to happen? And I think that was a troubling time for him. I think he went through a lot during those eight days. Because if we're not walking in close fellowship, if we're doubting the Lord, if we're not on track with the Lord, if we're not focused on him, we can get so discouraged by it. But praise God, after eight days, Jesus comes again. Again, he comes through the wall. Again, he says, peace to you. But this time, immediately, he goes to Thomas. Now, it's interesting to me that the Lord at this point had not yet dealt with Peter. Now, of course, I would think, to my way of thinking, that what Peter did was a lot worse by denying the Lord three times publicly in front of all those people. But he says, I'm going to deal with Peter later. I have another plan for Peter I'm going to deal with. I'm going to deal with Thomas right now. I love him so much, and I know he's concerned. I know he doubts. I know he's afraid. I know he wants to see me, and he walked directly over to Thomas. And they, in those days, used to sit reclined at table. It was probably pretty low. He went down, and he said, Thomas, reach here, your finger, right here. Touch that. Now reach your hand over here and touch my side. Touch my side. And he says, and be not unbelieving, but believing. And you can just imagine the look on Thomas's face. He probably turned white. He was shocked. How did he know? How did he know that this was my issue? How did he know this was my problem? Like sometimes you're sitting at church and you have a message, and you say, how'd the preacher know that? How'd that speaker know that that's what I was going through? Because of the Holy Spirit. And because the Lord knows all things, he's God. He knew exactly what Thomas's problem was. And he says, be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas just couldn't believe it. I think he fell down on his face and he said, my Lord and my God. That changed his life from doubting Thomas to a victorious Thomas. We all fail. We all have our weaknesses. We all get discouraged and down. The Lord loves us too much to leave us in that place. He will come directly to you. Even though he has many sheep, but that one sheep that needs his attention, he goes to them. He goes to them. And that's what I really appreciate about Adel and Sylvia and their shepherding ministry over the years. They love everyone in the flock, but they know who needs help. They know who needs care. They know who needs help and protection. And they go to that sheep. And we thank the Lord for that. But what a blessing is, the Lord came to Thomas and he changed his life. The Lord knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we need him every day of our lives. And he knows that doubting is bad for us. It's counterproductive, along with worry and fear. And they all go together like this trilogy. Doubt, worry, and fear. You ever notice how they all go together? They feed off each other. There are three evil triplets. And the devil tries to use those in our lives, worry, fear, and doubt. And you can put them in any order you want. They're terrible. And the Lord says, drive it out. Drive out that doubt. Drive out that worry. Drive out that fear so that you can be a blessing for me. 
A man named Norman Douglas said this, worry affects the circulation, heart, and glands, the whole nervous system, and profoundly affects the heart. I've never known a man who died from overwork, but I have seen many die from doubt. And I thought about that. When we worry and we stress out and we get fearful and we doubt, it's bad for us spiritually, of course. It's also bad for us physically and emotionally and mentally. It affects our whole life. That's why the Lord came to Thomas to deal with that doubt and deal with it immediately. Not let it go any longer. What a blessing it is. Reach here your finger. Reach here your hand and see it. You know, I love that song. Ginny sometimes sings for us as a solo. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. You know, Jesus cares for you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And he knows what you're going through today, whether it's involving worry, fear, doubt, or any of these things. And he loves you. And he's going to take you through it because he knows the rest of the story, like Paul Harvey used to say. He knows the end. It's amazing how Taylor was singing that song today because we can only see the chapter we're living in right now. But God knows the end. He knows the end of the story. He knows what he's going to do with your life and my life and how we're going to serve him for his glory. And he gives a tremendous response here. My Lord and my God. The poet once said, you are my master. You are my God. Help me to serve you on this earthly side. May the Lord help us. And he went from a crisis of faith to a climax of praise. I really like that. From, a, from being doubtful and bothered and upset, and he's now a blessing for others. A wise man once said, believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. I thought that was really good. Believe your beliefs, doubt your doubts. Throw those doubts out. That's the thing we have to do. We have to say, Lord, your word tells me that I shouldn't doubt. I'm not going to doubt. I'm going to throw it out. Just like you got a big pitcher of water, just throw it out. Throw out doubt. Because the end of the story for Thomas is what's really, really good. And a lot of it is not found in Scripture, but some of it is. And as you study this and tradition and things that happen, we're going to see what happened with Thomas. But here the Lord says to him in verse 29, he has just said, my Lord and my God. Notice what the Savior says to him. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who are those people that the Lord is talking about there? Thomas, you've seen me with your eyes. You've touched me. But there's people out there that have not seen and yet have believed. Who are those? You are those. I'm part of those. We're part of those who have never seen the Lord physically, but we've seen him with the eyes of the heart. And that's a blessing that we can have. And we can go out and share Christ with people and share with them what he's done for us, just like we were like Thomas, just like we saw him face to face. And he will bless our lives. If you look over to 1 Peter chapter 1, you see the beautiful statement there about the kind of faith that Peter and the other apostles mentioned. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse, let's begin at verse 6. Here it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, 
you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says in verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here Peter is one who saw the Lord with his natural eyes, and yet he says, you haven't seen him. He was speaking to those people there, the Jews that were scattered all over the world at that time. He said, you don't, you've never seen Jesus, but you've believed in him. And now you have a joy that's inexpressible. And isn't that true? When we come to Jesus and we can say, we have seen the Lord, not with our eyes, but with the eyes of our heart, and it's so encouraging that we can go out into this world and we can praise him, we can serve him, we can live for him, for his glory. And that's what Thomas did. His faith triumphed over his doubt, and he went on to serve the Lord. In 1887, a man named Henry Drummond preached a sermon in Northfield, Massachusetts, titled Dealing with Doubt. He said, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. Loving darkness rather than light is what Christ attacked unsparingly. But for intellectual questioning of Thomas and Philip and Nicodemus and many others who came to him to have their great problem solved, he was respectful, generous, and tolerant. Aren't you glad that we have a Savior who is kind and loving and compassionate? He could have lashed back at Thomas and said, Thomas, have I been with you so long and you don't believe and you doubted? And he could have just railed on him. But that's not our Jesus. That's not our God. When we fail, he is there to pick us up. Now, we do have to confess it because doubt is a sin. Worry is a sin. Fearing when God is with us is a sin, really, and all these things. But when we confess it to the Lord and forsake it and ask him to forgive us, he is the first one. He will walk right over to us, put his arms around us, love us back to himself so that he says, now, turn your eyes to me. Just like that song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Don't doubt. I speak to myself first. Don't doubt. Don't doubt that God has the power to answer your prayer. Don't doubt that God has the willingness to answer your prayer, and don't doubt that he has the love to answer your prayer. And yet so many times we look at this huge mountain ahead of us and say, I don't know how I'm going to get over that mountain. I don't know how God's going to do it this time. It's too big this time. And the Lord is just smiling. And he's just saying, reminder, Dean, haven't I done this for you in the past? Yes. Haven't I done that for you in the past? Yes. So he builds our faith by building blocks of, of faith and remembrance of what he's done. And yet when we're in that huge storm and trial, we forget. We forget, and we get so focused on ourselves and our problems. But the Lord says, don't doubt. Trust me. I'll take you through it. I'll be there for you. 
his story had a happy ending, and I'm going to tell you what Thomas did. The book of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about all the disciples, and every one of them were martyred for their faith, including Thomas, including Thomas. But what's really neat to me is that tradition tells us that Thomas ended up going and preaching in a place called Parthenia and India. Now, for those geographically challenged, if you figure the number of miles from Jerusalem to India, that's a long way. And I submit to you today that after this event happened, after the Lord restored him, after the Lord loved him, after the Lord showed himself alive, he loved the Lord so much he was willing to travel to the ends of the earth to proclaim his love and his glory to others. That touches my heart. And it says that he was preaching to the pagan priests there in India when they put their spear in him and killed him. He loved the Lord. What a huge comeback. You know, in sports they have the comeback player of the year, whether it's in baseball or football or basketball, and they honor that person who was down for one reason or another, usually an injury, but maybe being out of the sport for one reason or another, and they come back and they have a tremendous season. And that's because they call them the comeback player of the year. I'd like to submit to you today, Thomas was the comeback player of the year. Christ changed his life. Peter also, and you see it in chapter 20, he was the comeback player of the year also. And what the Lord did in their lives to turn their failure into victory, tail, turn their doubts, turn their denials, all of that for his glory to serve him. That just shows me God is a God of second chances and third chances, and fourth chances, and many chances. Will God ever give up on you? No. Will he ever give up on me? No. The scripture says we have a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise we can count on. And that's why once we start counting those promises and claiming them, we can drive out doubt. We can drive out doubt by the word of God. And I'm thankful that we have the word of God. Do you know that there's Chinese Christians today that have one page or one verse of scripture, that's all they have. They need Bibles over there so badly. And yet the gospel's going forth, people are getting saved in China. The more they persecute them, put them in prison and kill them, the church is growing stronger and stronger. They're actually praying for us, these Chinese Christians today. But we praise God that we can drive out the doubt, we can have faith, we can win the victory. So in conclusion today, let's take a blessing from the life of Thomas. Let's, when we get to heaven, we're not going to go up to him and say, oh, you're doubting Thomas. No. What we're going to do is we're going to come up to Thomas and say, I want to shake your hand. I want to hug you because, you know, I was blessed by your story. And if you hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't realize that I fail too, that, that it can happen to everyone. If it could happen to Thomas, if it could happen to Peter, it can happen to us. We have to stay close with him. We have to be blessed. And so I think we can get a great blessing by the life of Thomas. And in conclusion, I'd just like to read this little poem by a man named Norman Shirk of the Dallas Seminary. He wrote this poem about 38 years ago, almost exactly 38 years ago in 1981. He said this, Let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush. Just a few smoking branches, and I would be your Moses. Let me meet you on the water, Lord. 
just once. It wouldn't have to be White Rock Lake, just a puddle on the Dallas Peninsula after the rain, and I would be your Peter. Let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to blind me on North Central Expressway, just a few bright lights on the way to the chapel, and I would be your Paul. And then he concludes it this way. Let me meet you, Lord, just once, anywhere, anytime, just meeting you in your word. Must I always be your Thomas? You know, that was really something. So many times we, we elevate Paul and Peter and all the different ones, that, and Thomas too, and we can learn from their example. I am personally thankful that God does not include all their good traits only. Because if he did, we'd say, I can't measure up to that. I can't be like that person. So he includes all their failures, all their mistakes and weaknesses so we can relate to it. Does that mean he wants us to fail? No. Does he want us to be weak? No. Does he want us to sin? No. But he puts it in there so he can realize, here's the way not to do it. Here's the way to do it. Here's when Moses did right in the eyes of the Lord. Here's when he didn't. Same with all the characters of the Bible. They're there for our edification, for our learning, for our teaching. May the Lord help us not to be a doubting Thomas, but a believing Thomas. To be one who trusts the Lord. And when the problems come and when Satan tries to doubt, we say, no, get behind me, Satan. Get away from me, Satan. Drive you out of here because I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. His shed blood was given for me, and I am not going to listen to you. The devil tries to get in there and cause us to worry, to fear, and to doubt. We have to drive it out. And the best way is through the word of God and through prayer. And may the Lord encourage us to be victorious and to follow him. And if you're here today and you've never experienced the new birth, you've never received Jesus Christ before, and you're saying, well, I kind of doubt, doubt it. Don't doubt it. The Bible is the word of God. It is the true scripture. The way of salvation is clear. Jesus died for sinners. He died for you and he died for me. And all we have to do is come to him and accept him as our Lord and Savior. And though we can't see him with our eyes or touch him with our hands or hear his voice audibly, he's here today. The Lord Jesus promised it. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. He's here today and he's right here with us. He's sitting in one of the seats here. And he's listening to every word, every thought of our heart. He knows where you're at. He knows maybe you've heard the gospel before. You've, you've never experienced that before. And you can accept him today as your Lord and Savior. You can pray a prayer and ask him into your life. And as we go to prayer now, make today the day that you say, I'm not going to be a doubting Thomas. I'm going to be a believer. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to believe in the Jesus who died for me and had such compassion and such love. Shall we just close in a word of prayer? Father, we pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you in a personal way, they've got some doubts, they, they're not sure, they're honest and sincere about it. Lord, we just pray that they will see today that you are real, Lord, that you change lives. We're all witnesses here today that you took wretched sinners like us and you turned us into believers, into disciples, into servants of God. And help us, Lord, to go forth today encouraged by your word. Yes, we do fail. Yes, we do make mistakes. But you love us so much, Lord, and you want us to be on the right track, to turn our eyes to you and to be victorious. And so, Lord, we commit this day to you and thank you for your encouraging word. 
And we ask this in your precious name, Lord Jesus.